All right, welcome back to the next Faith and the Outdoors podcast with Sean McVeigh. In this podcast, I'm going to do sort of a Q&A, question and answer. So I uploaded my first one as an introduction, and that's when I started to get questions. Today, I'm going to begin to answer some of those. I got them listed here. If you're watching me online, you can see that I have a laptop sitting here. I'm simply going to read uh, what people have written to me and the questions they've asked, and I'm going to try to address them. And there's sort of a theme that's coming out of these questions here in the beginning, so I think it'll be a good um, good episode today to just kind of address them all in one. But first, I want to begin with prayer. So let's turn to our Father in heaven, in the name of his Son, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we turn to you because we need you. We turn to you because we want to love you and be loved, experience your love. We know that this is what we are made for, to be in relationship with you. I ask you to guide us today in this podcast. Help my words reach those who need to hear them. Help me speak your truth and only your truth. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's get right into it. I'm going to start reading some of these emails and comments, and then I'm going to address them. So I'm going to start off with Wayne. Wayne writes, Hey, Sean, thanks for taking my questions. To begin, I'd like to say I appreciate your eagerness to share your faith in Christ. It is rare that I run into a Catholic, including family, who is as open and passionate as you. First question has to do with the second Doe video where you mentioned praying to St. Anthony. Your testimony has compelled me. However, I struggle with not being able to locate a passage of Scripture where this was done. Please know I am not taking, I'm not trying to start a debate, just looking for some understanding. My first question is, is there anything within the Bible where someone has called on someone who has passed away? This leads to my second question. If we are okay to pray, ask for help to those who have passed away, then am I to understand the following verses, such as 1 Corinthians 15, 18, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, etc., those who are asleep in Christ. Again, I'm just trying to understand and grow. I'm not affiliated with any denomination, but I do believe that Christ is my Savior. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. I truly appreciate it. And the next one says, the next email is from Tim. I think Tim was from Pennsylvania. Yeah, Tim's from Pennsylvania. Uh, good morning, Sean. I'm just writing to give you encouragement about answering God's call to do your podcast. I feel that the platform that you are using, Archery, will be an effective bridge to the lost. I am a child of God. I love Jesus, and I heed to his call to make disciples. Uh, and that's from the end of the Gospel of Matthew that he's quoting. I pray that your ministry is fulfilled is fruitful and fully glorifying to God. I have a question that I am sure you have heard before. When we evangelize, does the message of the gospel sound more salty when we attach denomination names? Does scripture mention Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, etc.? Do I need to be a Catholic to be saved? If I'm not Catholic, am I missing something from the gospel? Are are the the Walking Dead? I'm not sure if he was trying to say. I'm sure he was trying to say something else there. Uh, those people who don't believe in Jesus attracted to our churches or 
our denominations? Or are they attracted to Jesus by people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and obediently walking and talking for Jesus Christ? Just some thoughts. Thanks for your message, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, and again, I'm going to address all these hopefully collectively here. The next person um, was commenting on my podcast, no, my my video where I mentioned praying to St. Anthony. So the second dough I harvested this year, I had trouble finding it. So I prayed to St. Anthony and boom, found it. And it was an answer to prayer. And Actually, I prayed through the intercession of St. Anthony, I could say I should say it that way, um, which I've done many times in my life. And many times St. Anthony has helped me find things. I have some very powerful stories on that. In fact, let me just throw one in. I worked in in-home sales a long time ago, and I was at, doing a presentation at a home, and they were going to go on vacation straight after the presentation concluded. During the presentation, the husband got up and wanted to find the SD card for their their camera so they could take it on their trip. He even drove to his work office to look for the SD card, couldn't find it, came back very frustrated, very angry. He's walking around the kitchen cursing, and I said out loud, Dear St. Anthony, please come around. This SD card is lost and cannot be found. The moment my lips finished the prayer, the gentleman cursed again and said, I cannot believe it. The SD card was suddenly directly in front of him on the countertop, and he picked it up, looked at it, and came and sat down at the table, turning a few shades of red and totally in disbelief. And I, I viewed that as God's witness to them. Um, so it's God's the one who answers prayers, but the saints can intercede for us. And I'm going to get into this in more detail later on. But, folks, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories of St. Anthony uh, immediately answering my prayer. And there have been some where I didn't find what I was looking for, but it's always because God has a different plan. Anyway, I'll get into that more. So I mentioned St. Anthony in the video, and the person, his screen name is the number two, the letter C, and then the truth. To see the truth is his screen name. And he says, no, no, no. What you're talking about is not biblical do you follow the word of God or man, Sean? And then he went on and made another comment. It says, I know the Bible quite well, and I can tell you this is not biblical. I would rather talk publicly. Now, what he's saying here is I, he, after he made some comments, I said, send me an email with your questions. I'll be happy to answer them. And he said, I would rather talk publicly so others may learn as well. So here we are. We're talking publicly. And I'm going to keep reading his, his comment. It says, where in the Bible are you getting this from? Do you not know that God sent the archangel Michael to retrieve Moses' body from the clutches of Satan so he could not use it to steal glory from God? All right, I had never heard about that uh, interpretation of that passage before. In Deuteronomy, it tells us that God, well, it depends on the translation. Um, Let me just read from this Bible right here. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 34 starting at verse 5. So there, in the land of Moab, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, as the Lord had said, and he was buried in the ravine opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Moab. But to this day, no one knows the place of his burial. So there's that passage. In my mind, and in some translations, it says that God is the one who buried Moses. So I... I responded to this guy's comment and saying, I don't know what 
you're reading. I'm seeing in the Bible here it says this. So then he referred to the letter of Jude, and there's only one chapter, so it's Jude 1, and in reference to verses 8 and 9. So I'll just read that to you. And I grabbed my other Bible. This is the the New Oxford Annotated Bible, New Revised Standard Version. This is what I used when I was earning my master's in theology. Um, so I figured I'll just use this because it's, it's not actually a Catholic Bible. So in a sense, you could say this would even be um, Protestant input on this passage. So I figured this would be a good resource because I've never heard of this guy's uh, rendition of that uh, idea before. So anyway, here's verse 8. It says, Yet in the same way, these dreamers also defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil and disputed about the body of Moses, he did not dare to bring a condemnation of slander against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. All right, so this guy in his comment was saying that St. Michael took the body of Moses so that the devil couldn't use it to take glory away from God. Now, this uh, commentary says the following, and the word Satan, by the way, means the accuser. So the devil is Satan. In this situation, The devil is there, and Michael is contending with him, and it says this about the passage. According to non-biblical Jewish tradition, when the archangel Michael was about to bury the body of Moses, Satan accused Moses of being a murderer, not worthy of an honorable burial. Michael sent Satan off with the words, May the Lord rebuke you. So, in that sense... It was not a situation where the devil was trying to steal Moses' body to take glory away from God. In fact, nowhere in the, the Bible does the devil try to take a human being's body to take glory away from God. In this situation, the devil is the accuser, and night and day accuses us before God. It even says that in Scripture. So here he's accusing Moses of being a murderer, not worthy of an honorable honorable burial, and Michael is saying, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, get behind me, Satan. Jesus would say that, get behind me, Satan. Go away, Satan. So that is the actual correct understanding of what is being communicated through the scriptures as opposed to um, the devil trying to steal Moses' body to, to take glory away from God. Again, it's really important to have the correct understanding or the correct interpretation of Scripture, and that comes back to a question of authority. Who has the authority to give us a clear, accurate interpretation of the Scriptures? Everybody listening to this podcast could read any passage of Scripture and come up with a different interpretation than the next person. Who is to say who is right? Because there can only be one right interpretation of a truth, because a truth is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no variations to an absolute truth. So when it comes to a definitive interpretation, who do we turn to? That's something I'm going to expound on later in this podcast. And he goes on to write another comment. It says, Sean, 
you are teaching things that are not biblical. But he said, you cannot expect anyone but God through Jesus to answer your prayers. You are misled. Please share some Bible examples of people praying to people that have passed on. And then, um, so here's the last comment that I have, and then I'm going to address these kind of collectively. This one says, Sean, respectfully, where in the Bible does it say to pray to any saints? I see praying to Jesus in there. Thanks. Okay, so the first, the, the foundational problem to all of these comments is that people have believed a man-made lie that sounds, you know, potentially reasonable, and they've founded all of their belief on it, not even really realizing how they're going off track from it. So the Bible itself does not have the fullness of truth that God has revealed. If the Bible did, it would tell us that the Bible alone has the fullness of truth. Let me make a clarifying statement. What is contained in the Bible is divinely revealed from God. We believe as Christians that it contains the truth. Now, that is a, what I just said is a truth, and I want to restate it. And then I want to talk about how Satan has twisted that truth to misguide many well-intentioned people. The Bible contains the truth as revealed from God. It does not have the fullness of truth that God has revealed. What is in the Bible, though, is truth from God. What the Bible does say, and I'm going to expound on this, is that the church, not the Bible, but the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So let me also talk about the Bible and where it came from. So if you're watching this video, I'm holding a Bible in my hand and I'm kind of flapping it up and down just to make a point. The Bible as we have it is a set of books that the Catholic bishops put together centuries after the start of Christianity. Let's back up. Let's look at God's plan for revealing his message to us. Let's go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve, okay, and he spoke to them, and he walked in the garden with them. He told them what they could do and couldn't do. You know, he said, you may eat of any of the trees in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were not allowed to eat that. They disobeyed God through the temptation of Satan, the devil, and sin entered the world. God did not come and, and, and at that time say, here's a book. Remember all these rules or remember this message and you'll be fine. He did not do that. So how did God pass on his truths? Well, for centuries, it was oral. It was passed on orally. This is out of God's plan. And in God's plan, he would raise up a leader to lead his people. And he would speak through that person. So, you know, we see this clearly with Moses. God would speak to Moses, and, and then he would relay God's message to, people, to the people. And you know, throughout the Old Testament, we see God guiding his people through one person. So then ultimately we had, the, well, we had the judges after Moses, and then we had the Davidic kingdom. So the, the people wanted a king. God gave him a king. Ultimately, 
King David was the one that God promised the Messiah ultimately would come through his lineage. And so there's an, a component of God's plan revolving around David's kingdom. Now, in David's kingdom, he had someone who was over the household, who would have the keys of the king and could speak with the king's authority on the king's behalf if the king wasn't there. And in the Davidic kingdom, the mother of the king was the queen in the kingdom. So we don't see it clearly so much with David, but so David's you know, wife, Bathsheba, who he took in appropriately, um, their son, Solomon, became the king after David. When David was king, Bathsheba would have to basically bow to the king when she would come into his presence. However, when her son Solomon took the throne, because she was now the queen, the queen mother, uh, King Solomon would actually bow to her when she would come into the room. But this is the format and structure that we see developing through the providence of God in the Old Testament. Now, at the time of Jesus, he is born... We know he's the Messiah. We believe that, those who are Christians. And Jesus lived quietly for about 30 years. Now, if God's plan was to write everything down in Scripture alone for us to have and read and follow, then why wouldn't Jesus have done that? What did he do for 30 years while he lived on earth before his public ministry? As we see from the actions of Jesus Christ the Lord, it was never God's plan to give us all of his revealed truths in Scripture alone. If it was his plan, he would have indicated that somewhere along the way, and in fact, Jesus himself could have written everything down for us and said, here you go. Anybody who wants to believe me, read these books. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. You're going to understand it perfectly, and we'll all be good. That wasn't God's plan. It was never God's plan. God's plan is always to bring us into community, and then he created a structure in that community. So those who are asking for a Bible alone answer, you need to first realize that nowhere in the Bible does the Bible claim to have all of the answers. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, look to Scripture alone. As I said before, the scriptures do say that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And if we look at Jesus's activity, we can see that Jesus came to establish a, a, a kingdom in the format of the Davidic kingdom. Jesus is a king from the line of David. So the, the kingdom in the Old Testament prefigures what Jesus would fulfill. Here's a big detail that a lot of Christians, a lot of non-denominational Christians or whatever, that they don't realize is that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament, which means you need to really correctly understand what takes place in the Old Testament to understand what Jesus was fulfilling. He didn't come to replace the Old Testament. He didn't come to give something different. He came to fulfill what God was revealing throughout all of that time. So what was God revealing regarding his, his kingdom? It would be in the, the format of the, the kingdom of David. So that's why a lot of people, and I can if someone has any issue with Mary um, and, and the way the Catholic Church views Mary, 
that you could email me that and I could address that in a separate podcast. We don't have time for that today. But if you'll notice, the, the Catholic Church has always revered Mary as the queen mother. And we see in the book of Revelation her depicted as a queen of heaven and earth and, you know, crowned with 12 stars. I believe it's in chapter 12 of Revelation. So you could always check that out. But we see the person, Mary, who gave birth to the Savior, Jesus, is depicted as a queen in heaven. And Jesus is a king from the line of David. So that's where some of those ideas come from. But that detracts from what I'm trying to talk about today. So I'm going to step back over to the kingdom here as far as one given the keys of the kingdom. In Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 24, we see a prophecy of the one over the kingdom in the, in the kingdom of the Messiah. And the people who are named there are named there for specific reasons. So the person who was used in the prophecy was Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. And he was the prime minister or the one over the household of King Hezekiah. And you can read about that in um, Kings chapter, I think it's 2 Kings 18. Um, Hezekiah, it says in scripture, was, was basically the best king after David who had a heart for the Lord. He like The problem with the Israelites in the Old Testament is they kept falling into idolatry and turning away from God. And it was this repetitive cycle. And many of the kings led people into idolatry. Well, here Hezekiah steps up and he takes down a lot of the false altars and the the idols that the people were worshiping, and he turns everyone back to the Lord. So it says there was no one like him before or after. And the prime minister or the one over the household under Hezekiah was Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. So here we have a Davidic king who was probably the best representation of what Jesus would be when he came, and his prime minister. So now that wording and in that um, prophecy is fulfilled by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Jesus asks the people, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say, the, you know, John the Baptist, some a prophet. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. So here we see the Father in heaven giving a direct revelation to a man named Peter. And Jesus then says, and you are rock. This is in Matthew's gospel. This is where Jesus renames Peter to rock. You are kepha. You are Cephas. It depends on which trans, which language you're translating from. In Aramaic, that Jesus probably spoke, he is kepha. In um, in the Greek, it would have been in Cephas. So you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that's the same exact wording in the prophecy in Isaiah that I just mentioned. So what we see in Jesus's plan is he came to start a church and he chose 12 men who he named apostles and he gave specific authority to the rock on which he was going to build the whole church, which was Peter. So Peter being the head of the church, all the gospel writers were writing in hindsight. They were writing in the church that had existed for decades by the time they wrote the Gospels. And since everyone knew that Peter was the one over the household, 
every gospel writer always put Peter first when listing the apostles because he was the head. And Jesus, in fulfilling scripture in Matthew chapter 16, shows us he is assigning his authority. And in the one who was over the household, he could speak with the authority of the king in the king's absence. We also see in that that passage in Matthew 16, God the Father in heaven gave Peter a revelation directly that no one else on earth had ever received. So we see how God can speak his revelation to this individual who Jesus names over the household. And he gave him the keys of the kingdom, and he says, What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he is given the authority to bind on earth and in heaven, folks. That, that is a th- an authority that goes beyond the earth, this world, this dimension. It's, it's mind-blowing. Okay, then if you lo- step back and continue to look at what God did, After Jesus died for us so that he could save us and he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to the apostles. I will also mention this, that in in Matthew's gospel, it says a few verses later or later on in in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives the keys also to the apostles. Now, what that means is they have an authority from God when they're in union with the head, Peter, they have an authority to bind and loose. They have the ability, and Jesus breathed on the apostles at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. He says, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. That's a great topic on, you know, why Catholics go to confession to a priest. I am actually going to have a priest here for the next episode, so we can address that one in that episode, but for now, I want to stay on point. Jesus is setting up people and giving them an authority. Now, the bishops, well, those are the successors of the apostles. They have an authority from God. And so what we see Jesus establishing is a church based on people giving an authority to an individual, a specific individual, and to the college of individuals he trained for this ministry. And He left. He gave the church and the authority to them. He didn't give us a Bible. Jesus did not hand us a Bible. He gave authority to these men and their successors. Now, what do we see happen when an apostle dies? Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, killed himself. What did the apostles do? They appointed a successor. And in fact, anytime they set up a new church, They appointed a new leader for that area. They ordained bishops throughout the world. There are bishops across the world who carry on this authority. Again, we had no Bible for several hundred years. You can do your research. There was no Bible for hundreds of years after the start of Christianity. What did we have? We had the church based on the authority Jesus gave the leaders of the church And it started with Peter. Peter set up his office in Rome, and he became the bishop of Rome. From that time forward, the leader of Christ's church on earth, the one who had ultimate authority and the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose, resides as the bishop of Rome. We later gave him the affectionate term Papa or Pope. 
So that was a that was just something we we look at we look at the church as a family of believers with a head over the family. The father of the family is the pope. So that's really how that evolved. Now, those are the people who have the authority to say what books are inspired by God and what books are not inspired by God. So but what we have is the Hebrew scriptures were the original scriptures and there was not agreement on which ones were inspired by God. The Pope, it's, it's not a situation where if the Pope's giving an interview on TV, it doesn't mean everything he says is correct or from God. When the Pope makes a definitive proclamation ex cathedra from the chair of Peter, then we can put our faith in that. And it's done very rarely. Or if the Pope gives an encyclical letter or gives approval of an ecumenical council, these are the things, these published documents are what we base our faith on. It's not any word that the Pope says in an interview or gets misinterpreted or mis, misquoted in some article you read on the internet. That's, that's not how we follow Jesus. The way that we follow God is by the defined teachings that are passed down in faith and morals. With that said, it was the bishops who got together and determined which books were inspired by God. I also want to throw this in. St. Jerome, in the 4th century, since they made Latin the official language of the church, he was given the task to translate the Hebrew and Greek texts into Latin, and the Bible he put together was called the Latin Vulgate. Now, some of the books that are in the Catholic Old Testament are not in the Protestant version of the Old Testament, and I'm going to explain right here, right now, why and how that came about. There were books that were disputed, even in the 4th century, as to whether or not they were inspired by God. St. Jerome had questions about some of them. But St. Jerome was a translator. He was a, a scholar in the church. He was not a pope. He was not a bishop. He did not have the authority to determine which books were inspired by God. All His gift from God was his, his scholarly ability to interpret from one language to another. He had to defer to the pope. The pope said, nope, these are the books that, you, that I want in the collection. So he obeyed. That's our role, is to obey the authoritative decisions made by the Pope and the bishops when they are in keeping with the teachings of the church in the areas of faith and morals. With that said, for hundreds of years, there was no definitive version of what we call the Old Testament. There were debates on it. The earliest I've seen people put a claim that the Jews solidified their, quote, canon of Scripture, which means their, the books they viewed as inspired by God, was around the year 250 A.D., after Jesus. 250 years after the birth of Jesus is the earliest I've seen with, with someone putting a claim on that. Some scholars say that it really wasn't even solidified then. There continued to be debates over time. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see how St. Paul was under trial and he pitted the Pharisees and Sadducees against each other because they did not believe the same things. The Sadducees 
did not believe in the resurrection after death, and they didn't believe in angels. Many scholars attribute that to the thought that they only believe the first five books of the Bible were inspired by God, which is the, the Torah or the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the, where they get that from is Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote at that time, said that the Sadducees only upheld the law, which meant the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees included, they accepted a lot of the other books, such as the prophets and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the book of Psalms, all these different types of writings they accepted in their canon of scripture, but there wasn't agreement with everyone. Like I said, the Sadducees did not agree with the Pharisees on which books were inspired by God. So the debate continued for hundreds of years, and the wording used, if you ever want to research it, is what books defiled the hands. So for whatever reason, they viewed an inspired book from God as something that would defile your hands after handling it. Now, here's an interesting detail that I only learned a couple years ago. So the Hebrew scriptures were only recorded in consonants. You actually needed to be taught what vowels went in there, and they did all that orally. So you had to go and be trained by someone who already knew. So you had a list of consonants there. They would teach you what vowels go in there so you could know what the word even was. In fact, St. Jerome had to do that when he was interpreting the Hebrew scriptures into Latin. He had to go and learn from those who could teach him what vowels went in there. So again, it's not scripture alone, but there's this human component that God had deeply involved in the, the transmission of his truths throughout salvation history. Now, hundreds of years after the start of Christianity, Again, disputes continued. Some say that they did not solidify their canon of Scripture until a group created a vowel-writing system for the Hebrew language. Now, I don't remember the exact year that this started to creep into existence, but it, it, it might have been 600 A.D., might have been 800 A.D., but somewhere in that time frame is where this system of writing was developed, and then they started to put their writings into a codex. Up until that time, they had scrolls, and you could put your scrolls in a jar, and if you decided that that book is not inspired by God, you just took the scroll out of your jar. But then around six or 800 AD, whatever it was, they began to put their books in a codex, much like what we have in a book now, a bound book. So they had to really come to a determination as to what books they were going to put in there. And that's when we really see the solidification of the Hebrew texts. And some, and there's not even clarity on who made the decision. Some say that it's the group that developed this writing system that ultimately decided which books were going to go in there. With that in mind, the Catholic Church had a Bible that they were using for hundreds of years before they even solidified that codex in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Now, even if they solidified those books way back in 250 AD, it still was hundreds of years after the start of Christianity and you, if you are a Christian, need to think about this. If you put your faith in the 
version of the Old Testament that the people who rejected Jesus put together, then you are basing your faith on people who rejected Jesus and what they concluded. That's a, a real statement, and I, I hope it actually disturbs some people because it's a truth that sometimes if we hold on to a lie and we have a hard time letting go with it, we, we have to be deeply disturbed. God has to shake us up so that he can reorient us toward the truth. So now, the fact is, the Old Testament was solidified hundreds of years after the start of Christianity by people who rejected Jesus, and it's that version of the Old Testament that ultimately ended up in the Protestant version of the Bible. How did that happen? 1,500 years after Jesus, we had what we call the Protestant Reformation, Um, There were abuses going on in the Catholic Church at that time. They weren't abuses in the theological defined teachings, but they were abuses in the way people were acting on them. So, for example, if, um, if I was to say to you, I'll pray for you, that's something I'm called to do. But if I say, if you give me $100, I'll pray for you, that is an abuse of the way I am supposed to act on something God has revealed. God calls us to pray for others, but we are not supposed to charge money for it. And that's basically what was happening in the church is the church was trying to raise money, some individuals in a church, and they started to sell what's called an indulgence. I don't have time to get into what that really is here, but they were trying to take accept money to raise money for the rebuilding of the church, and that was wrong. It wasn't a theological teaching. It wasn't like, if you don't buy an indulgence, you're going to go to hell. That was, it's not a teaching. It never was a teaching. What they were doing was abusing this idea to make money. So it wasn't theological teachings. It was religious practices that were being abused. And there was a priest named Martin Luther who had a very a big problem with this, rightly so. And so he wrote a list of objections, which he called the 95 Theses, and he nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg and uh, wanted to debate it. Ultimately, he got into verbal scuffles with those in charge at the church, and it went very poorly. They, they, the, there was a breakdown from there. This is where we see for the first time this idea that all you need is Scripture alone. So, folks, getting back to some of the questions I read at the start of this podcast, the guy was like, if I'm not Catholic, am I missing something? If I'm not Catholic, can I be saved? Well, if you're not Catholic, yes, you are missing a lot. And in in particular, you're missing part of the revelation of God in Scripture. You're not, you don't even have all the words God has revealed in Scripture. That's one thing. Because what Martin Luther did is he went back and he, at that time, again, this is in the 1500s. They didn't have internet. He had looked at, you know, he was trying to translate the Scriptures into German, the vernacular, and he realized, okay, I want to believe that all you need is faith alone and Scripture alone, and that's it. You don't need the church. You don't need a hierarchy. And, or anything like that. So if you pay attention to the wording, he was creating a self-oriented religion that did not need the hierarchy that Jesus established. Look, guys, if all I need is my Bible, I don't need you. I don't need the Pope. I don't need a bishop. I don't need a priest. If all I need is my faith alone, I don't need a church. I can even just pray on my own. This is not the plan of God. 
Okay, but this is where the questions that I received are born from. So he was creating a religion where he could justify in his own heart and mind leaving the authority that Jesus established in the church with the Pope and the bishops over him. So he rebelled. Who else rebelled? The devil rebelled. The devil rebelled against heaven and was thrown out. And now we have all this chaos and sin in the world because of rebellion. Not obedience, but rebellion. Okay, so although there was a need for change in the church, Martin Luther separated himself and began to create new religions or new ideas about religion in order to justify for himself his departure. So that's where... That's where the problem really is. And with all these questions, like if you say, show me where that's in the Bible, well, that's based on the idea that the Bible alone is where we find all the truths revealed from God. Now, getting back to that statement, everything in the Bible is truth revealed from God, but the Bible alone does not have all of what God wants us to know. In fact, Jesus said to the apostles in John chapter 16, I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear to hear it now. That is why I will send you the Holy Spirit who will lead you to all truth. That is why I will send you the Holy Spirit who will lead you to all truth. Jesus set up these apostles And he said, I will send you the Holy Spirit to guide you all truth. He did not say that to the crowds of people, but to the people he established as the leaders of his church. Now, as time has gone on, there have been issues that come up in the world that are not answered in the Bible that we need an answer to in order to fulfill God's will. Let me give you an example. We live in a world that has made abortion legal. So the question became, When does a person become a person? When is it killing? Like, if that's not a person, it's not killing a person. So then we can do it. Well, the debate came out, when does a person become a person? The Bible doesn't actually tell us when a person becomes a person. Now, some people have pointed to passages such as, you know, God saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Well, yes, God has in his mind right now um, a young girl that's going to be conceived next month. That person is not alive right now. It's not a person right now. It is someone God knows in his mind. We do not have a life yet. There is not a person with a beating heart. So when does a person become a person? This Bible alone does not tell us. Who do we turn to to get an answer? Because this is a vitally important answer. It's a matter of life and death answer. We had to turn to the church, the Catholic church, who has the keys of authority and is led by the Spirit. And what did the church say? The church said a person is a person from the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, God is there, present with the married couple, to grant a soul. God creates with the couple in that moment. In the moment of conception, God grants a soul to that person. The person is a person from that moment, the very moment of fertilization of the egg. So, my friends, that was a defined truth given to us by God 
not in Scripture alone, but through the authority Jesus established, he gave the keys of authority to the Pope and those who succeeded him. In fact, every bishop on this planet can trace his ordination lineage back to one of the apostles. There are actually records of this in the Vatican of ordination. So now let's get to the question of where, you know, where can I find in the Bible people praying to saints, things like that. First of all, I mentioned 1 Timothy 3.15 that says the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And let's look at the actions of the church from its beginning. What did people do in the time of the book of Acts to be healed? They were prayed over by the apostles, including Paul. But they also asked for even things like the handkerchief of St. Paul to do miracles. So St. Paul wasn't even present, just his handkerchief in order to grant miracles. This happened even from the beginning of the church. They were basically calling on the intercession of another person, and that person wasn't even there, and that was granting miracles. St. Paul also said in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by a letter. So we see the transmission of the faith both orally and in, in a letter. There is an element of oral tradition that even St. Paul calls us to hold firm to in the second letter to the Thessalonians. But anyway, in the book of Revelation, we see the people, the elders in heaven, presenting prayers to God in the form of the incense. It was the prayers of the saints. So what it is is, like, if I ask you, the person who's listening, to pray for me, you're going to turn to the Lord and pray. Now, if I go to a saint in heaven and say, "Will like St. Anthony, will you pray for me? He's going to turn to the Lord and say, Father, Sean McVeigh needs help right now, and I'm asking you, Please grant that help. So that is a form of St. Anthony offering my prayer to him, to the Father. So all prayer ultimately is going to God in heaven, and we are just asking for their help. Scripture says that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful indeed, and those who are in heaven are perfected in God. They are not dead. They are fully alive in Christ. And in fact, I was asked questions about those who are asleep. Those references mean they are no longer physically here on earth, but their soul is with God in heaven. So at the end of time, so when we die, we face judgment. Our soul is judged on our works. And you can read 1 Corinthians 3, uh, I believe it's right around verse 10 to 15, somewhere around there. When we die, we are judged. And we're based, it's ju- we're judged based on our works. And if we did not build on Christ, but we can still be saved, our works will be burned up. It says we will be saved, but only as through fire. That's where the idea of purgatory comes in. and But then our soul ultimately will go to heaven. This idea of purgatory, I started to talk about this earlier, and then I got sidetracked. Martin Luther saw that the second book of Maccabees had a clear depiction of praying for the souls of the dead that they might be released of their sins. It's a clear depiction of praying for the dead and purgatory. Because if they're in a place where they can be released from their sins, that means they're not eternally damned from hell, but they're also not in heaven. 
So where are they? They're in this this place waiting to be fully released or or made perfect from the sins of their past. Martin Luther did not want that to be the case. So he found that the Hebrew version of the Old Testament did not include this book. And so he said, oh, you know what? This is the revealed canon from God, not the one that we've held in the Catholic Church all this time. It's the one that the Hebrews, the Hebrew texts were put together by the Jews. And so he adopted the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, which has seven fewer books and different versions of Daniel and Esther. And in fact, the Catholic version of the book of Esther does reveal God and God and prayer to God. The Protestant version and also the Jewish version has no mention of God at all. There is no revelation from God. So that in itself should cause you to question where did these people get their authority from to name this as a book that contains revelation from God when there is no mention at all of God or prayer or anything? The book only contains a political dispute between groups of people. That's it. And the Catholic version, as I said, does depict God, does depict prayer, and it does contain the revelation of God and what God does. Anyhow, Martin Luther chose this version, and that's how the Protestants ended up with only 66 books in their Bible. The Catholic version of the Bible has 73 books. I talk about this in more detail in my, in my book, Become a Better Archer and Use It to Avoid Singing. I really encourage you to check that out. Anyway, getting back to the Bible, the Bible does show Moses interceding on behalf of the people before God. The people weren't going to God alone. They were going to Moses and say, please intercede for us. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15, verse 1, Moses and Samuel are, are depicted as appealing to God. And this is long, on behalf of the people long after their death. And again, we are called in Scripture to pray for others. Like 1 Timothy 2.1, St. Paul writes, I exhort you, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. So we are being charged in Scripture to offer prayers and intercession for all people. That doesn't end. When we're in heaven, we worship God. There's different types of prayer. There's prayer of worship, prayer of intercession. And so in heaven, we worship God, but we also intercede. And in fact, when I made reference to the elders in heaven um, presenting our, our prayers to the Father, they present these bowls with incense coming out of them, and they turn in worship. They worship God. So in the act of giving our prayers to the Father on our behalf, they worship God and his goodness. Now, a lot of this, and you know, I've been talking for a while. I want to just kind of maybe bring in this point is a practice we've had in the Catholic Church ever since the time of Jesus. In fact, in the wedding feast of Cana, this is the beginning of the Gospel of John, Mary goes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Now, Jesus is there. He's at the wedding. He can see they've run out of wine. Jesus had no intention of doing anything about it. Mary sees this. She doesn't want their day getting ruined through humiliation from running out of wine. She wants to spare this couple humiliation. She wants them to enjoy their wedding day and have a great time. So she goes to her son, who she knows can do something for them, and she says they've run out of wine. And Jesus says a phrase, it's a Jewish idiom, 
Woman, what have you to do with me? This means you have authority in our relationship and whatever you say is what I'm going to do. And in fact, the demons say the same thing to Jesus when they encounter, what have you to do with us, son of God? What have you to do with us? And then Jesus casts them out because he has authority over them. In Jesus's kingdom, Jesus humbled himself to become a human being and he took on human flesh to save us. In doing so, he lovingly made himself obedient to Mary, his mother. In fact, as a child, when Jesus was in the temple, this is the only situation where we see Jesus make a choice as a young person. And he was around the age of 12. He stayed in the temple in the Gospel of Luke. Mary and Joseph feverishly look for him for three days, and then they finally find him. Son, why have you done this to us? We, this has caused us great anxiety. And he, he's confused. He's like, didn't you know I needed to be of my father's business? And then he went with them and was obedient to them. So Jesus saw how his choice impacted his earthly parents, and he affirmed his choice to remain obedient to them. And one of the commandments is, honor thy father and mother. Jesus is always going to honor father and mother for all eternity. He has made Mary his mother by the very act of the incarnation. And so Jesus will always honor Mary. Even when we are all in heaven worshiping God, Jesus is still going to honor Mary. And that is an utterly mind-blowing thing. <laughs> I, 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 I'm at a loss for words for that. So I got to keep going. After Jesus says to Mary, what have you to do with me? She turns to the waiters and says, do whatever he tells you. And then he tells them what to do, and he does the miracle. So what we see in this example is intercession on behalf of others that God actually wants. And here's what part of the big problem that comes from these ideas of Scripture alone and faith alone. As I said, Scripture alone and faith alone becomes a very self-oriented type of religion. That is not who God is. God wants us to be in community. God wants us to help each other. God did not even come and talk to people on his own when he could have. When he, went, when he was going to ask Mary to be the mother of his only begotten son, he sent the angel Gabriel to, to ask for him. Why? Because God loves who he has created he wanted to include us in his plan for salvation. It wasn't, it's not, God's not a dictator. He's a family-oriented God. He is, God himself is community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is a community. And so he calls us to community. He calls us to pray for one another. That's why he established a church. It wasn't that you will be able to do it all on your own. No, you need to depend on others in the plan for salvation. I can't do it all on my own. I got to depend on the people of authority to reveal God's truth to us the correct way. Otherwise, if I rely only on myself, my faith alone, my Bible alone, the devil's going to trick me. The devil will trick anyone who thinks they can do it all on their own. If you think you don't need a church, you're already deceived. We all need a church because God, his plan is to save us through his church. And he didn't come to start 50,000 churches. He didn't come to start a whole bunch of different denominations. He came and started one church and gave the authority to one person, the keys of the kingdom. What he binds on earth will be bound in heaven. What he loses on earth. And the word Catholic was given to the church even before all the scriptures were finished being written. 
The first time we see the church that Jesus started being referred to as the universal, which means Catholic church, was around the year 110. And that's right around the time that they think the writings of John were being finished up, like the epistles of John. And the gospel of John was maybe around 90 to 110, somewhere in that time period. So when the scriptures were still being written, the church was already starting to be called the universal or the Catholic church. Universal means total. It has the totality, the full divine revelation, and it's it's for everyone. It's universally for everyone. So there's a dual meaning to the word Catholic. So now, getting back to that person's question, if I'm not Catholic, am I missing something? All these different denominations, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, folks, if you are not Catholic, you are missing out on truths from God. In fact, like I said, you don't even have everything God has said to you because you don't have the complete Bible. It was the Catholic Church who had the authority directly assigned by Jesus to definitively define what books were inspired by God. If you do not hold the Catholic Bible as the inspired set of writings, then you are relying on Jews who rejected Jesus and then a man who was a disgruntled priest who began to create a self-oriented religion in the 16th century. These are the facts. And I you know, I'm sorry if if it disturbs you, but like I said before, if you've been following those false ideas, it needs to disturb you. God needs to disturb you so that he can get you back on track to the fullness of truth. So those of you who love Jesus and want Jesus, I encourage you to listen to this again. And I actually, you could read my book, Become a Better Archer and Use It to Avoid Singing, Sinning. And especially chapter four is where I really spell all this out in a concise manner. You can follow it through and you can see even more than what I've shared in this podcast, how it is that the Catholic Church is and continues to be the church that Jesus leads and guides through the power of the Holy Spirit. All other churches have broken away from the fullness of truth. So the fullness of truth comes through that teaching authority established on the Pope and the bishops who are in union with the Pope, and anyone who breaks away from it, starting with Martin Luther and all these other denominations that have come after, they have broken away from the fullness of truth, and a lot of the ideas they present are based on falsities, like Scripture alone being all you need, or your faith alone being all you need. It doesn't say any of that in the Bible. The only thing it says about faith in, you know, faith alone, the only passage in the Bible that uses the words faith alone is James 2.24, where it says you're justified by works and not by faith alone. But that's one of the reasons Martin Luther tried to get James out of the Bible. I don't have time to get into all that. I want to bring this, this episode to a conclusion by, by just saying, look, the tradition of the church has always been to ask for intercession. We see in the example in Scripture Mary interceding for the married couple. And from that example revealed in Scripture, we've always realized this is a good thing, and it's something God wants. God wants us to have a family. God is not a dictator. God the Father could answer every single prayer, but he's looking at you right now saying, look, i got so much more for you. I've got all these great family members I want you to talk to. And that's what we do when we talk to St. Anthony. He's my brother in Christ. And he helps me when I lose something. 
if you ever lose something and you pray to God till you're blue in the face and the, the prayer isn't answered, maybe he's trying to encourage you to expand and embrace his whole family that he's giving you. And maybe he wants you to say, hey, St. Anthony, will you help me out with this? Will you pray to our father for me on this? Again, Jesus could have helped that married couple on his own without Mary interceding for them. But he chose not to because he wants his family to be involved. So, my friends, the fullness of truth is in the Catholic Church. I have shared that with you, and you are free to choose it or reject it. As the person asked me, if I'm not Catholic, am I missing something? Or if I'm not Catholic, will I be saved? Listen, if the fullness of truth has been presented to you, or the truth has been presented to you, and you reject the truth, then you do put yourself in a little bit of jeopardy. I am not the judge. Jesus is a judge. But if you reject truth, that means to some degree you are rejecting Jesus. Now, to conclude, I will say, what does the Bible say about itself? Does the Bible say anywhere that it has the complete and absolute final revelation of God? No, it does not. Do we see in the Bible God's plan of establishing a church with a hierarchy, with keys of authority, and Jesus saying to those individuals that they cannot bear to hear everything he wanted to reveal at that time. That is why he would send them the Holy Spirit who would guide them to all truth. And do we see an example in the Bible of where, at what point in time does a person become a person? No, we don't. We need the church and the church's authority, because anybody can read the scriptures and come up with their own interpretation. Who can we trust? We can entrust, we can entrust the ones who were given the keys of the kingdom to bind on earth and in heaven. That is the Pope and his successors. So if you have any questions, send me an email through any of my websites, seansoutdooradventures.com. And that's spelled S-E-A-N-S, and then the word Outdoor Adventures, the words Outdoor Adventures all together. I also have CatholicGuestSpeaker.com. Uh, I have some videos on there, too, that um, talk about some related type things. CatholicGuestSpeaker.com or NewCatholicEvangelization.org. That's a new website. I just just purchased the domain. I haven't even had time to start building it yet. So, But you can still email me through that website. So my call and encouragement to you is to pray. If you are not Catholic or you have been a lapsed Catholic who has not been fervently living your faith, come on, man. It's all about God. There's only a matter of time before we're going to die. we got to live the right way now. So straighten yourself out. If you have been a lapsed Catholic and you haven't been getting to church and you haven't been living your faith, let's go. Put your priorities in order. And if you're not Catholic and you're a Christian, I want you to realize that the fullness of truth can only be found in the Catholic Church, and I'm inviting you to it. And I really want you to check out <clears throat> my book, Become a Better Archer and Use It to Avoid Sin, simply for the fact that I lay it out there very succinctly for, to help you find your path back to the church or to the church for the first time. Guys, you cannot do it on your own. You cannot rely on your own reasoning. You cannot rely on your own ability to interpret the Bible because all of us can be tricked by the devil that way. 
What was the original sin? Disobedience. How did Jesus restore us? Obedience unto death. What are you obedient to? For me and my house, we are obedient to the teachings, the defined teachings in faith and morals set forth by the Catholic Church, the Pope and the bishops, those that have been written down in writing for us to follow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care and God bless.